0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Stenopad Scribbling found to contain alien hieroglyphics that, if read, will wipe out order in the court and bring on anarchy in high places. Oh, wait, that's already happened. Plus, we conclude. The complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a roundtable discussion this time with the editors and authors of the great new Ring of Fire alternate history anthology, Grantville Gazette 9. We are joined by Eric Flint, Walt Boyes, Joy Ward, Griffin Barber, and Jackie Britton Lopatin. So stay tuned for that. And we conclude the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Yay. Now here's the news. Hey, I want to call your attention to our very cool Bain Books Teacher's Guides, by offering an ebook sale this month. Bain Teacher Guides are developed by teachers and education experts for use by homeschoolers and teachers in the classroom. All Bain Teacher Guides provide a background of the novel, a complete and comprehensive summation of the story, a vocabulary list, individual chapter summaries, focus questions, and initiating activities, and uh, reading comprehension quizzes thought provoking discussion questions and lots more these are amazing resources in other words for amazing books and they are downloadable free at bain.com forward slash study guides and now for july we offer one dollar off all the bain ebooks that have a teacher guide that goes along with them these include great books like 1632 by eric flint monster hunter international by larry Correa a beautiful friendship by David Weber and some great Heinleins such as the star beast farmer in the sky and the rolling stones stock up for education for entertainment or both and check out the Bain teacher guides they're a wonderful resource for everyone and you can find the complete list of teacher guides and discount ebooks at bain.com <music> This is part two of a two-part discussion of Grantville Gazette 9. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Eric Flint, Walt Boyes, Joy Ward, Griffin Barber, and Jackie Britton Lopatin, or is it Lopatin?
2: Lop- Lopatin.
1: Lopatin to Lopatin. the podcast. Hello, folks. Hi. Right. Right. Um, let me talk a little bit about both of you, although I might need uh, Jackie to, uh, to fill me in on her background or someone else to uh, Eric Flint, modern master of alternate history, fiction, 3 million books in print is the author and creator of the multiple New York times, bestselling ring of fire series, uh, starting with 1632, which came out in 2000. And it has, uh, and this is where it's resulted 21 years later. Um, He's written uh, six popular novels with David Drake, the Belisarius um, novels, and with David Weber, he's written those Crown of Slave novels that are set in the Honorverse book, and there's a new one in process right now that's going to come out in the fall. It's going to be great. Um, And what else we got? Uh, Eric was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives outside in the huffing puffing East Chicago area where all the the steel mills are or used to be um Walt what's that still
3: there
4: they're still here
1: yeah
3: hold on a second I've got a spam Uh, all right sorry about that
1: Walt Boyes is, is the editor of the industrial automation insider magazine editor of the Grantville Gazette um which is uh the the community uh electronic um magazine of i guess you would call it of of the 1632.org uh i don't know what the organization's called uh everybody that has to do with Eric's wonderful uh, ring of fire series um
4: oh, and, community its the best term, probably yeah eric's minions let's
1: just
5: go eric's ahead.
1: minions <laughs> and uh
3: along with joy yeah, ward, my, uh, my video isn't on
1: yeah
4: some of them are very definitely not managed.
1: you're not moving some. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, joy ward author of a novel um she has several stories in print and magazines and anthologies and she's the uh, co-editor of the grantville gazette um she's written a a For many publications, including Mother Jones on the issues, commerce and government review, Griff Barber, he spent his youth in four different countries, learned three languages, burning all his bridges in the process, finally ending up in Northern California with a day job as a police officer in a major metropolitan department. um, Where he lives with his lovely wife and crazy smart daughter and some animals. He is the author with Eric Flint of uh, 1636 Mission to the Mughals or Mughals and um 1637 the peacock throne which are uh india india area before it was india uh based um 1632 alternate history novels there's walt
3: there excellent there we go
1: excellent. so
3: that'll teach me to upgrade zoom just before a meeting
1: <laughs> well out now at what booksellers was yeah what out was now, go ahead let me show you the book out now at booksellers everywhere. Here's the 3D version of Grantville. Oh, oh, look at that. It's a book. Yes, it's a book. Uh, you can see from all sides. Well, speaking of Jackie's story, um, which is yeah. called what is the title of that? It's uh, a <laughs> The Invisible Dogs of Grantville. Yeah, it's got um. <laughs> It might have even invisible tigers, but no, it's about invisible. (laughs) I mean, it could, (laughs) who knows what they are. Um, Tell us about this, this story, because it's, uh, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a a comment on the psychology of people at the time, and of our day, sort of coming, um, intersecting, in a way.
2: Well, I would read one one book by Dana Stabenow that reminded me about the invisible dog craze that there was back in the 1980s. Oh, I first I saw know. it at a science fiction convention with, you know, someone, you know, walking around a, a leash that that had a collar at the end of it and it looked like they were walking a dog and they were having a good deal of fun, you know, you know, making it sniff people and and <laughs> and it was just kind of a fun bit of improv theater type of thing and so I thought it's like well what if someone found one of those invisible dog leashes up in their mother's attic and and I was like how can and and maybe it would and it was a character from uh, another story that I that I'd sold um, and I've got to admit that uh, I have made precisely three fiction sales in my life and they've all been to the grantville gazette so and and so um i basically like probably
1: shouldn't give up coal mining yet
2: exactly yeah it's uh well mostly i'm an oral storyteller and a documentarian Ah. and so fiction store i just I discovered it was really hard. It's tell us driven. a little
1: about, before you start talking about the sure. story anymore. tell us a little bit yeah. about your background, because I didn't have a bio on you.
2: It's, um, well, I've, I'm an English major, library science minor, and I worked in the public library in the children's room for about a dozen years before I quit to homeschool my daughter. And then I made an abortive attempt to become a videographer, and and storyteller, and then I ended up uh, meeting my husband, who is a master flute maker, and <laughs> yeah, he's he's a lot of fun to brag on, and his.
1: I get, you're and, flouting him right now.
2: You oh. <laughs> oh, don't sorry. Yes, I am. I am. I am. Uh, I like to brag on him. His first job out of Juilliard was with the Metropolitan Opera as the as third flute and piccolo player. and then he left that gig after three years to move to Boston to learn how to make flutes because he had um, an idea that for tonal production that he wondered if that would if that would make a difference if giving a flute square tone holes instead of round if that would make a difference and mm. and so. Um, yes, I've done a nice photo documentary on his, on his website squareflute flute, uh, square one Sorry, extra plug on him. And, and so I had, uh, I had, I'm also, I've been a science fiction fan, like forever. And I, uh, I read one of David Carrico's, uh books and and was really impressed with one scene in particular, it really touched me. And so I dropped him an email and said I, it really touched me. And then we talked about the fact that my husband was a flute maker and he figured that the musical instrument, instrument makers of the 17th century would be able to, to make uh, the symphonic woodwinds no problem. And I'm married to a flute maker. I know how complicated it is. It's like, it would be a real problem. Mm -hmm. And, and so uh, we talked about that. And he
1: David writes, uh, a lot of his stories have to do with music. music, Exactly. (laughs)
2: Exactly. So that the fact that my husband's a professional musician, as well as the flute maker, um, I was kind of hoping I'd spur him to to somehow include the square one flutes into the 1632 universe, well, and I but
1: have been but, at least. By the but time. he
2: kind of told me that he was he was too busy with his projects, and so that I should try it. And about nine months later, I finally had uh, squarely the best uh, was published in the online magazine of the Grantville Gazette. And but that was, that was a, a long involved one. The whole slush program is. Um, at one point, I worked for a publishing company back one of my first jobs out of college. And so I've you know, I've I got my first job as an editorial assistant was reading slush, and so I'm really impressed that that Eric was able to kind of outsource that to to, yeah, to fans. Yeah. Uh, it's like have them go through the slush pile first, and
1: well, it takes picking out <laughs> oh. the right people. That's that's Ooh, the
4: talent. Yeah. I, I have never yet plowed through an, an 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 initial slush pile.
2: I don't blame you.
4: <laughs> no, I, I don't want to. It's uh, and we actually get better quality stories, I'd say on average than than a lot of places get. But I, a, a good friend of mine, a co-author of mine. Uh, Kathy Wentworth, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. She was the coordinator for the Writers of Future Contest for a number of years, and she was one who would first read the stories as they come in, and hundreds of them would come in for that contest. And, uh, oh, man, she had worse stories to tell. Uh, uh, her favorite story is the one that had a turnip as a viewpoint character. Uh,
2: <laughs> turnip. Wow. Turnip, okay. Yeah. turn up
4: as a boy character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it wasn't a comedy. I mean, it wasn't like a satire. Or anything. It was like a serious story. So anyway, I have somehow managed to always make sure I've got a, a buffer between me and, and that. The way this works with the Gazette is that the editor, this past one, it was Walton Joy, uh, they go through the we decide which issues we're gonna select from. Mm-hmm. And then they go through and read and select out a lot, about twice as many as we're gonna wind up needing. And then they send a list to me, and then I read those and 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 I make the final selection. And that's actually in most cases, that's actually the first time I've ever read the story because I don't hardly because my experience. Editing Jim Bain's inverse magazine had some unfortunate aspects to it. And one of them was that even though he fucking knew better, Jim Bain just would not stop trying to be a backseat driver. Uh, even though he'd been an editor himself and you know damn good. and Well, you can't do that publisher has to keep his nose out of the an editor runs a magazine. That's really the way it has to work. And so I don't meddle with my editors. I just, um, including, I don't even read the stories until we get around to selecting the anthologies. You know? and then I get very heavily involved in it, but mm-hmm. that's how we do it.
1: Well, tell, all right, so let's get back to the invisible dogs though. Okay. <laughs> what uh, what, uh, what the heck? would that come out? All right. One of the things that's interesting about all the grant bill stories to me is frequently, um, the uptimers are figuring out ways to make a living because they've been thrown back. They have no skills really for this world. And so they have to figure out like, how the heck am I going to do this? So they start thinking about starting little companies and things like that. And sometimes they're very successful. Like the, um, the girls that started the Barbie thing. Um, etc. So so what happens here um up to a point don't give us all, don't give it all away but what's the
2: Okay well the way the boy find I mean everyone agreed that of course you don't want to sell the actual invisible dog leash and you sell and, them it a would, leash and it would and it would be ridiculous and it would be ridiculous to waste uh uptimer tech and resources and time and energy to make any of them to sell, so what the kid does is he has signs made up uh, to put in people's windows that this house guarded by an invisible dog, and so they're for sale at the Higgins Hotel, and and the kid every once in a while would would come by the hotel and and walk his dog along and and let it sniff at the. At the various bushes and act, you know, acts as if he's walking a dog, and and then other people kind of looked at the whole idea. And of course, it's ridiculous, yeah. but I have. But um, the
1: downtimers, they 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 know it's probably not real, but they they don't know exactly what tech is working and what doesn't, right? And, right. Uh, it, whoopee, so that is.
2: True. So my my story actually starts out with. Uh, one of the military engineer teacher or the teachers at the military uh, engineering school, uh, he gets asked by a by a downtimer. it's like, why haven't you told us about these invisible dogs? And he says like, who told you about invi- that Granville has invisible dogs? I have never seen them, but if we had invisible dogs, they would be a highly classified military secret. <laughs> and And so that uh,
5: makes sense. yeah.
2: The, I basically, this was the most fun story that I've ever written. I just went from logic to logic to logic. and and so it's like, how would other people figure out ways of of making money on it? Well, after after the the army person has said this, the downtimer kind of pointed across the way to someone is carrying a tote bag that says, beware the invisible dogs of Grantville. And it's got a a fuzzed out picture of that's kind of a dog shape, you know. And and so people have figured out ways of of piggybacking uh, ways of making money onto the whole invisible dog craze. And so it's at one point it's like I have an artist who's Who's drawing pictures? Uh, you know, doing portraits of families, but then um, beside the family, they'll include a picture of their invisible dog, which is kind of fuzzed out in the shape of the dog that that they want to have done. Uh, you know, kind of like the the um, not termina- uh the Predator movies. <laughs> it's like you know, so so you've got got the picture fuzzed out, and and so it's just. It was a lot of fun and yeah. the engineering what a great concept what yeah. a great concept the engineering <laughs> students get caught up in it and i remembered from an episode of macgyver in which he went back to visit his old engineering school every year they would have a you know a particular type of contest and i thought well it would make sense that that the engineering schools would want to have an invisible dog contest how to convince you know uh, how how to convince the uh, the enemy that we have invisible dogs? Because can you think of any any better way of making the the uh the enemy combatants nervous as heck uh, over any little you know rustle in the background or the, anything like that? It's like is that a dog? Are we yeah. about to be attacked? <laughs> and
1: ordinary tactic, yeah.
2: And then of course the story really gets weird. that I used to do book talking for the library yeah so it's a it's a lot of fun and and it's absolutely ridiculous and and I just really enjoyed it and it's (laughs) old
1: and it's old It's, it's yeah it's a great story um well let us um let's let's talk about Eric's story um which is uh which starts the anthology and get back to tigers um invisible or not um and it's so what happens when they come back is that they have brought they, they brought it they haven't brought like you know the the library of alexandria with them or anything they brought like the encyclopedia the world book and stuff like that but they they have some books and one of those they brought back uh, when they got thrown back in time, was the the was the Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, and so there's people at the time that Grantville is there who will be famous or might, but ha- aren't yet, and and explain sort of where Hobbes is in this.
4: Um... Well, it's um, I should say by the way the uh, it was Tom Kidd's wife is what I came up with the idea for that cover. Um, and there's been a long-running tradition of the Gazettes, going back to the very first one, uh, where I sort of play a game. It started with Jim Bain, and after he passed away, I continue it with Tom Kidd, our artist.
1: Tom Kidd is the is the artist of all the... Of,
4: uh, yeah, well, except for the first, like, three. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, for the last, basically, 20 years, he's done all the covers... And the game is that the artist comes up with a cover first, and then I have to write a story that that explains that cover. Um, and in this case, um, sometimes we cheat a little bit in the sense that you know I know ahead of time what the idea is going to be. It's not a complete surprise to me. But um, what happened? And there's a seam in the series that has cropped up a number of times. Which is the really terrible position that artists and scientists um, of the era are put in if they're already famous in another universe. So, for instance, Rembrandt's still a young artist. Uh, Rubens is well established. He's well into his late, late end of his career, but Rembrandt's a new artist. So does he paint the ones that he painted in this other universe, which people can go look and find in a book because there'll be those books in Grantham. Um, it's something that scientists run into. And in the case of Hobbes, today we're, what Hobbes is famous for today is as a political philosopher, and the guy who wrote Leviathan, but in his day, he was mostly considered a mathematician. That's how he viewed himself. was was mostly as a mathematician. Um, and so, what happens in this story is that uh, he and uh, he's the tutor to a very wealthy young English lord, the third Earl of Devonshire, uh, and they wind up in Granville because um, they're 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 kind of on hard times because. Um, uh, the Earl's father was a spendthrift and ran through most of the family's money they're still quite wealthy but then his mother got um, in an in unpleasant relationship with the Earl of Cork who's actually running England now. And then they went over to Paris and they got in a squabble with the new king of Paris so they had to take it on the lamb and run to Magdeburg, and that kind of broke. Um, but Princess Christina, who is the the daughter of Emperor Gustavus Adolphus, and she's very precocious, very smart, but she's only ten years old, and she has decided she's going to collect philosophers because she already collected Rene Descartes in the previous issue of the Gazette, and she's really excited that that Thomas Hobbes has arrived in Magdeburg, and what she wants, because she's also trying to introduce Halloween to the Germanies, because it wasn't a tradition there. And she thinks it'd be great. So she, and she's also become a fan of Calvin and Hobbes comic books. So this all comes together in her mind, and Thomas Hobbes will be her Tiger Hobbes. And she'll go as Calvin when they go trick or treating together. And You can imagine the attitude that this philosopher in his late 40s has toward all this. Um, What winds up happening it's actually the young Earl who's the one who's actually wearing that costume because he says look I'll just take care of this because but what winds up coming out of this is the development of a a different way of designing very crude computers which is basically by using electrical relays and in order to make that work Hobbes actually invents boolean algebra 200 years before bull invented it and he's never heard of bull so he actually invented it from scratch so they've decided they're going to call it hobbesian Algebra because at least once uh, be able to give when it was genuinely a great man in the way, you know, recognition for for something. Um, and that's kind of it's this is a story I wrote kind of tongue in cheek. Um and it's um it, it's not a real heavy grim story. I'll put a out And um what winds up happening out of all this is the way they finance this project is by turning part of the Imperial Palace into a funhouse. Um, It's actually modeled on a funhouse. I visited as a kid in Barcelona and Spanish funhouses, at least in the 1950s, had a very different philosophy from American, you know, Theme parks. It was like you fall out of a roller coaster. Why the hell then you hold on? You know, um, I, you know. I mean, I remember going through that funhouse and and things I describe in the story were actually in the funhouse. Um, and years later, I went to Paris when I was uh, my fifties, and I went to the to the playground at the Tuileries to see if it was still the way it was. I remember a kid. Yep, the French still have a playground. Where kids break their legs, break their arms, they just take it for granted it's going to happen, you know, and uh, just the way it is. Nobody gets sued, um, so that's pretty much the 17th century attitude toward a funhouse is is it's it's, it's, it's a, very much of a contact board, let's put it that way. <laughs>
1: uh,
4: I had a lot of fun writing it.
1: Yeah, a lot of things come together in the story, uh, yeah. and you even have illustrations of circuits made with.
4: Uh, yeah, actually, it was Rick Boatwright who uh, who designed those for me, and, and he sent me those circuits, and uh, and I, uh, I I actually got them from Rick. I I didn't design them. Um, Rick has been for many many years just. He doesn't write very much, but he's been uh, uh, played an enormous role in the series in the background, doing things like this, inventing stuff, thinking stuff up.
6: Yeah, yeah he uh, uh, he helped me make my first sale to the Granville Gazette. Uh, I'm I don't have much of a science background, and and Rick, uh, uh, I was struggling to finish uh, Bank on it, my first story that I sold, uh, and couldn't and. Uh, uh, because I didn't have the MacGuffin that I needed, and uh, Chuck Gannon heard me whining about it and and uh, asked uh, Rick to take a look at it and uh, tell me what I needed to. And of course, he was uh, Rick was able to explain it in terms I could understand uh, the the science and the chemistry involved. So uh, I owe literally I owe my first publication to to Rick, uh, and then Peacock Throne. He helped me out with um, the. Uh, Feasibility and, and uh, making sure it was realistic the uh, uh, arms, uh, weapons manufacturing, as well as the gunpowder stuff. What, what what could happen, given the uh, circumstances there? So that was he's he's real special to me.
1: Yeah, well, he's uh he and uh, Karen Offert are going to have a uh, a sixteen thirty
4: two. They've got a new book coming out in in uh, September. Um, it's the second of the Dr. Gribble Flats books. Yeah. Um, it's called Dr. Gribble Flats and the Soul of Scorer. It's got a great cover. Yeah. Uh, really
1: um, forward to that. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, I believe it's in ARC right now, so you can even buy it at the bane.com
4: website. It'll be coming out in just a couple of months. Um, yeah.
1: well, what are, um, so, Walt and Joy, what uh, what are some other highlights of the? Uh, quickly, please, um, but but let's let's talk about them uh, briefly uh, of of this anthology.
5: Well, I believe didn't I? I haven't looked at the anthologies for a while, so I'm, my memory is <laughs> the, uh, the working out know, of things. But
1: well, uh, I can okay. tell you that we have stories. We've got. Tim Sayu, Robert Knoxon, Griff Barber, Bjorn Hassler,
3: Yours Sarah Kiernan,
1: Margo Ryer, Mark Huston, Robert Waters, uh, Philip Riviezo, Terry Howard, Tim Rush, uh, Sarah Hayes, Mike Watson, Ivor Cooper. Uh, we have a Gribble Flush story. Yep. Terry Howard, Brad Banner, Ann Keener, uh, Jackie Britton, Lo Patton, and uh, Karen, another Karen Offord there um and david Carrico, so that's some of the stories in this thing it's a massive book um sure.
4: not even there are a lot of stories in it there are a lot of stories in it.
1: it's not even touching on all this the the amazing stuff that's in the gazette i mean it's just it's just touching on it's like the um the tip of an iceberg of all the great well, stuff Well, the sure. best of the gazette
5: well and think about this you know life has lots of little stories that's what, if you look around you, there are all kinds of stories going on. And that's exactly what's going on with the Graniteville Gazette. These are lots of stories of life uh, with real, well, sort of real people, I should say, uh, and how this weird change is affecting them. Like, like Jackie's story with the invisible dogs. I mean, that's something that would have just dropped out of the, off the moon at these people, but they had to deal with it. And so they did. And that's kind of a, the whole purpose of what we're doing is letting people see all these wonderful small stories. Uh, like Bjorn Hasler's story is um, a lovely set of letters uh, between a, a husband and a wife. And it is very, very touching. So some of our stories are funny, but some of our stories are also very sweet. But some are just mean. We've got some mean people out there too. Yeah.
3: One of, the, one of the stories that really hooked me and I, and, and one of the, and I bought it originally for the Gazette uh, is a story by Tim Sayow mm-hmm. about this father who finds out from documents from Grantville that his daughter, who is two years old, is going to grow up to become one of the most famous poisoners and killers of history. And he's desperate to make that not happen. It was an incredible story. Tim Sayo has, has written some absolutely marvelous things and some really funny things too. He um, he wrote uh, several stories about um, uh, uh, Dag Rolving, who is a colonel in the Swedish army. And he's the guy that gets to make... Uh, when, when Gustav Adolphus uh, wants to do something for his daughter, he points at Dog and says, Make it happen, you. Uh, and so it's Dog's job uh, to, to, for example, go to a little town in northern Germany and tell them that they have to change their name to Narnia. Why? Because, because, because. They've made a count of Narnia and he needs a Narnia to be count of. (laughs) And...
4: That that, that comes out of of a novel I wrote with David Weber, a long time ago now, 15 years, called 1634, The Baltic War. And what happens is one of the central figures in that novel, Thorsten Angler, he's just a... German working class stuff, but he winds up getting a military, has all kinds of stuff, and he winds up um, getting romantically involved with a uh, uptime American woman, and then he winds up at the big culminating battle of the of the book. He winds up capturing two two of the top officers of the French army. And neither of these captures is anything heroic. I mean, it's just, you know, frankly, it's kind of blind luck on his part. But this kind of makes him famous. And his girlfriend, her name's Carolyn Platzer, has become the governess of, of Princess Christina, who is Gustavus Adolphus's only child. And she is going to eventually become the Empress of the United States of Europe. And if you ever read anything about her real history, she was a character. I mean, she was extremely bright, and um, she was something else—willful. Um, and and willful, yeah. And 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 we're picking her up at the age of nine, you know, and um, and having this extremely bright child, who because she or who she is has a lot of power in a way is really a fun character to work with but in any event she uh she pesters her father the emperor to give her governess's boyfriend an imperial you know a noble title and so what he decides to do is is he will create for the united states of europe the same kind of it's a type of nobility that um I think the Austrians had, I've forgotten who it was, but it was kind of you'd appoint somebody something. You know, it was essentially you become an imperial knight, essentially. So you didn't have to have the long pedigree. You, the emperor would basically say, you know, your your account. And and Christina has been reading the CS Lewis, and she insists he has to be the Count of Narnia. So the story that Tim wrote <laughs> when Walt told me about it, this is hysterical, uh, is that this, this officer is one who gets the assignment, go find a town <laughs> in, in, in Northern Germany, not too far from Lubeck, somewhere in the area where the battle was fought and, and just explain to the town folk that they are henceforth <laughs> the, town of, the town of Narnia.
3: And the response from the town folk is the title of the story. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> well, it's kind of,
5: um,
4: their, their reaction is a little bit, I don't know if anybody ever saw a movie, I'm blanking on the title, it's a hysterically funny movie. It, uh, it's the uh, Bert Lancaster's in it, um, but it takes place entirely in, in Scotland, in a small town in Scotland which is sitting on oil.
1: Called local hero. Well,
4: yes, yes, local hero. And and so this big oil company wants to buy. And they send uh, one of their young American executives, I've forgotten who plays the character, to talk people in this town into doing it. So you're expecting one of these, you know, the townsfolk, no, this is our town for generations. (laughs) Of course they're actually great. We're all gonna be rich. Uh, and the problem is there's one holdout. There's one guy, he's a beachcomber that will not sign, and they got to get everybody to sign. It's a really funny story. But to some extent, the the, the, the town folk of Narnia have a bit of that reaction, too.
5: Mm-hmm. Wait a
4: minute. <laughs> uh, you could probably get a tourist trade out of that. Uh,
1: At least, um, yeah, put a lamppost up and they'll they'll flock to us well,
4: there are a fair number of stories in the gazette that have they're not exactly comedies necessarily but they are are pretty lighthearted, and and they they involve things like this and, yeah. of people thinking of, of things that have happened in the series and then developing them into a story
1: into well um, eric you're going to continue to support this amazing community you're you're gonna let them continue playing in this garden you've created
4: uh-huh. yeah it'd be crazy not to um i mean the thing that you gotta understand the count of Narnia? <laughs> is the gazette is to the best of my knowledge i've talked to a number of people who know the history better than i did the gazette has been in existence as a professional magazine now for 14 years um, no magazine in history has ever had that kind of a run based on a series that was not a media property. There have been a few successful, you know, there's a, a magazine called The Man for Uncle for a while. And, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek will have a magazine. But this is based on a pure literary property because there's never been a movie or a TV series or anything, a 1632 series. And um, the magazine makes a profit. You know, um, it. Yeah. It no. gives
6: people a start. Yeah.
4: yeah, it gives people a start. It, uh, um, it, it. Nothing that's happened in the sixteen thirty two series was planned ahead of time. I mean, this was not some scheme I had figured out twenty years ago trust
1: me even though you're originally wrote
4: 1632 i intended (laughs) it to be a standalone novel i had no intention of turning it into a series um and then everything sort of started unfolding we decided oh let's do an anthology and hey that worked and now let's try this magazine and that worked and then starting a few years ago we launched our own publishing house ring of fire press which is now actually quite successful and uh Yeah, it's uh, and all these things tend to reinforce each other. Um, So there is as yet no sign at all that the fans of the 1632 series are fading away. Um, It's not the biggest series in the world in the sense of the most readers, partly because it's it's someone it's something of a challenge because it is very complex, many different. Uh, novels and novels often read quite differently so you know it can be a challenge and a a lot of people sort of fade away after a while just not because they don't like it but just because I couldn't keep up but I don't think any series out there has as dedicated a fan base as this one I really don't I mean it's just uh
3: no I it it's pretty amazing um um, the second half of Bjorn Hassler's security novels uh, about uh, uh, Newsteader's European Security Services, which is what, came out night before last at midnight. And there's a whole thread on Bain's Bar now about people who stayed up all night reading it. And there's more, there's more than two. So it's it, um Eric's right, we have some seriously dedicated fans. And the tip between being a dedicated fan and actually writing for the series isn't very hard. Um, we have had over 150 authors now who sold us their first published fiction professionally
1: yeah um, well, it's uh it's an amazing community and an amazing uh amazing um playground to play in that eric flint has created and now we have nine editions of the grantville gazette uh print edition and this is grantville gazette nine um it's out now at booksellers everywhere so uh walt boys, um joy ward griff barber
6: and let me
4: give yes. some the next book in a series that's coming out in december is it's also an anthology of those different from that one it's called uh, 1637 the coast of chaos and it's a themed anthology it, it's kind of like a braided novel almost uh where all the stories are related to each other and mm-hmm. uh, it takes place in north america um i have a short novel in that in that book that's cool. Uh, Cool. that will so, not- be the next one we have coming out and uh, we have right now I think there are six 1632 novels underway on stage of completion or another. Griff and I are doing one of them. Walt and Griff and I are doing another one. Um, I'm doing one with uh, uh, Robert Waters. I'll be doing one with Chuck Gannon and I'm doing one with Walter Hunt and I'm doing one with Jody Lynn Nye. Um, so there's gonna be a lot more coming. Yeah, yeah. Over the next year or two.
1: Onward and upward with the arts, especially the uh the alternate history, uh ring of fire arts. Well, thank you all so much for um especially Eric, um, who I didn't let me go over the list again. Eric Flint, Walt Boy Joy Ward, Griffin Barber, Jackie Britton, Low Patton, uh all part of the Grantville Gazette 9 anthology and uh, and involved in this wonderful uh, 1632 community. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us about Grantville Gazette 9 today.
2: Okay. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you.
1: That was part two of a two-part discussion of Grantville Gazette 9. Part 1 is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war, the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities, such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor.
0: Afterward. A note from David Weber. It's been 25 years since I first sent a very young Commander Harrington and HMS Fearless off to Basilisk Station. I didn't expect her journey to last for a quarter century when she and I first set out, but it's been a fantastic voyage from my perspective. Way back in 1991, Jim Bain suggested that since every book I wrote seemed to spawn sequels, perhaps it would be a good idea to actually plan a series for a change. So I came up with 10 proposals for a possible series. One of them was Honor Harrington. Little did I know when I suggested that possibility that Jim had been looking for someone to write Hornblower in Space for a long time. I'd already decided that if the series worked, the inevitable comparison was going to be to Forrester's Hornblower novels, which was why Honor had the initials I'd given her. But I really wasn't prepared for how enthusiastically Jim jumped on the proposal. I wrote the first two novels, Basilisk Station and Honor of the Queen, back to back, and Jim released them about a month apart, which I think played a significant role in the series' early success. But I don't think that was the only reason it succeeded. I think it succeeded because Honor Harrington as a character speaks directly to her readers. She possesses qualities which I, and I suspect the majority of my readers, wish we, and especially our leaders, possessed. The greatest of those, of course, is that Honor Harrington takes responsibility. She takes responsibility for her own actions, yes, But it goes farther than that, because she assumes the responsibility of fixing other people's problems, not because anyone else would have expected or demanded that she fix them. She fixes them because that's what responsible adults do. You can see that in her from her earliest iteration in Basilisk Station. When a young, tactically brilliant, unwittingly charismatic, and politically naive and inexperienced naval officer finds herself pitchforked into a political and moral minefield, with which virtually every officer before her has resolutely declined to deal. It's what follows her throughout her career, and I would argue that it's what generates such unbreakable loyalty in both the people she commands and the readers who have followed her through the last 25 years. This book actually represents the culmination of two separate story arcs. I've explained elsewhere how the timing of the Mason alignment got pulled forward as the consequence of a couple of collaborative works with Eric Flint, That meant the originally planned ending for the story arc, beginning at Basilisk, had to be modified, because that story arc was supposed to end with Honor's death in action against Lester Tourville's fleet at the Battle of Manticore. Her death and her dying message to Queen Elizabeth, for God's sake, let it end here, was supposed to bring the war with Haven to a conclusion and cap that storyline. The next major story arc was supposed to begin 25 or 30 years later, when the mason alignment intruded into the light and Honor's children carried the torch forward, while the junior officers introduced in shadow of Saigonami provided the ship commanders under whom they and their friends served. I can't pretend I'm sorry, Honor, didn't I, because the character became even more important to me than I anticipated she might. And her death, however fitting and purposeful it might have been, wouldn't simply have grieved her fans. It would have grieved me as well. It did create some significant logistical problems, however, including the fact that the Solarian League was supposed to have had another couple of decades to get a clue where its technological inferiority was concerned. But I'm actually very satisfied with how the combined story arcs have ended in uncompromising honor. Although, of course, as anyone who's been reading the books undoubtedly understands, there is still plenty of skullduggery to come where the alignment is concerned. In fact, but that would be telling, wouldn't it? If any single poem sums up Honor Harrington's entire life, it would undoubtedly be Rudyard Kipling's If. She's grown from that earnest, determined, focused, apolitical, professional officer, the daughter of a yeoman who didn't have a clue how politics worked, and even less desire to find out how politics worked, into a great noblewoman, into a head of state in her own right on Grayson, a duchess in Manticore, commander of the Grand Alliance's primary striking force, one of her star nation's leading strategists, and the confidant, advisor, and personal friend of monarchs, presidents, and protectors. She's acquired the poise and the confidence to face the responsibilities that go with who she's become as fearlessly as she ever faced a salvo of incoming missiles. And she's still willing to make the right choice, the hard choice, regardless of the personal cost to her. She has indeed met with triumph and disaster, and treated those two impostors just the same, just as she's filled the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. I'm satisfied with where she is, with who she is, and who she intends to be going forward. She didn't die on her quarter deck, as I'd originally intended, but like Horatio Nelson, she can say, thank God I have done my duty. And so, at the end of this book, I've sent her off to the honorable retirement my original plan for the series had denied her, and I'm glad it's so. She deserves it. Of course, people are already asking me if there will be additional honor novels. I may be willing to see her in peaceful retirement. Quite a few of her readers aren't. I make no promises, but I very, very much doubt we've seen the last of honor. I know we haven't seen the last of the honor-verse, although I'm now at a point which lets me explore some other portions of it that I've wanted to explore for a long time. And in the course of those future explorations, I'm sure Lady Dame Honor Alexander Harrington, Duchess and Steadholder Harrington, will return to the stage. I doubt the salamander will find herself in the heart of the furnace again. She's too senior for ship command, even for fleet command in many ways. But then again, she's also grown beyond a simple ship commander, a simple fleet CO and whatever I may want for her in terms of peaceful retirement, it does seem unlikely she'll be able to stay there forever. As Empress Elizabeth says, the time is bound to come when her monarch, her star nation, her duty needs her once again. And if that time comes, she'll answer the call of responsibility the way she always has because, in the end, however she may have changed in the course of her journey from Basilisk to Operation Nemesis... At the core of her, she is still who she always was. She's still Honor Harrington.
1: This has been an Audible Studios production of Uncompromising Honor, Honor Harrington, Book 14, written by David Weber, performed by Allison Johnson, executive producers Steve Feldberg and Mike Charzik. producer Kat Lambricks. Copyright 2018 by Words of Weber, Inc. Sound Recording Copyright 2018 by Audible, Inc. Audible Studios is a
5: division of Audible, Inc.
1: That was the concluding entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Jukowicz. And the final piece in a Mobius strip-shaped picture puzzle of Saxony Anhalt, or is it the first piece? Plus praise and gratitude for Eric Flint, Walt Boys, Joy Ward, Griffin Barber, and Jackie Britton Lopatin, editors and authors of Grantville Gazette 9. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.